You are listening to audio from Hyde Park Baptist Church. You can join us each Sunday morning at 1045 Eastern Standard Time at hydepark.online.church. Timothy chapter 2. I want to say welcome to each one of you, to all those who are watching online all over the world. We're glad that you're with us this morning, and certainly we want to uh, continue to and invite you to connect with us if you're watching online, if you haven't already. You, know, you can email us. Email us. Uh, my email is jeff at highpark.church. If you're out there in another state or even another country, we'd love to hear from you. Uh, just reach out to us. If you have a question, something we can pray with you about, we'd be glad to do that. And of course, that extends to everyone also in the building. We want to be available to you. We want to serve you. We want to help you in your walk with Christ. Second Timothy chapter 2. And what, what I'm going to do this morning is I, I've got a couple of verses here we're going to read, but particularly verse 15. I actually want us to read that verse together and out loud. So when we get to it, I'll read through it, and then I'll come back and we'll read it again together. So 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, remind them of these things and charge them before God, not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Now, I want us to say that together out loud. So join with me, verse 15. Here we go. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Father in heaven, our aim and our goal this morning is exactly that, to rightly handle, rightly divide, correctly interpret and apply your word. Father, that is our goal every time. We open your word here at home, whether we're reading a blog post, whether we're listening to a podcast, whether we're reading a devotional book that that we make sure that what we're reading, what we're consuming is based upon your word that never changes. Father, there are a lot of voices saying a lot of things. But Father, there's only one voice that matters, and there's only one truth that stands, and it's yours. So Father, help us to fight through all of the noise and to hear your voice above all others. And Father, that especially is what we need today. We need to hear your voice. So, Father, speak to us through your word today, through the Holy Spirit. Thank you for speaking through us through these songs. Father, we thank you for your grace, which is sufficient. And it's where we find our strength. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the state of life you've given us. In Christ's name, amen. We've seen over and over again the warnings from Paul to Timothy about staying faithful to the word and dealing with the false teachers that were creeping into his church. We've heard. Paul used phrases like this, Timothy, you need to wage good warfare. He says to Timothy, Timothy, you need to fight the good fight. In 1 Timothy 2, he said that after he identified that the false teaching was coming into the church in that first letter, we get up to chapter 2, and, and Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, now the first thing you've got to do is you've got to pray. When Paul could have said a lot of things that needed to be first, he said that prayer needed to be first. And not only prayer, but prayer that was focused on praying for those who were in charge over Timothy and over Paul, who at the time happened to be Nero. We've heard Paul say to Timothy, 
Timothy, you need to be careful with money. You need to be careful with possessions. Don't let your possessions possess you. Make sure that the love of money does not grow stronger than your love for God. And then last week we saw where Paul said to Timothy, Timothy, you need to focus like a soldier. You need to train like an athlete and you need to work like a farmer. All for the purpose of of spreading the good news of the gospel and making sure that people hear what is true. But right here in verse 15, it raises the possibility that Paul was concerned that Timothy may just may compromise God's word. Why else would Paul say this to Timothy? If you remember, Paul refers to Timothy and Titus as sons of the faith. And these are men that, that, that Paul has poured his life into and have trained and equipped these men. And Timothy, being the pastor of the church at Ephesus, has been doing a great job. He's been faithful. But the only reason that I can come up with that, that Paul would include verse 15 in this letter is to make sure that Timothy does not compromise the truth. The reality is, is that there's a lot of compromising going on now. There's a whole new wave of, well, it's not really new, but it probably may be new to your ears and, and to ours. It's this idea of what's called progressive Christianity. Progressive Christianity is the idea that, that you, can, you can follow Jesus, you can love Jesus, you can be committed to Jesus, but at the same time, live any way you want to live. Now, that's not a new concept by any stretch. I mean, that's been taught, well, ever since the church was founded by those who seek to undermine the gospel. But, but what's new to our ears and what's new to our culture or maybe new to, our, to what we're facing is the way it's being packaged and the way it's being presented and the fact that it's creeping into every area of Christianity from, our, from seminaries, Bible colleges, to the local church, and into the home. And the idea is, is that you don't have to give up anything to follow Jesus. You don't have to, to give up a lifestyle, an addiction, that you can bring that with you, that, that Jesus loves everybody and he loves you and he would never ask you to give up anything. So what we're going to do is we're going to try to get God's word more aligned with our popular culture so that we can get God's word to agree with us. And that we could get God's word maybe to not be so confrontational. But maybe we can change a few things here and there to Orthodox Christianity. Maybe, maybe Orthodox Christianity needs an upgrade. Maybe, maybe we need to change some of the terminology so it's not so offensive. Folks, let me tell you from the very beginning that the gospel itself, while it is good news, it is offensive. The gospel itself is offensive because it's the gospel that calls us out of the life we're in to a life that God has called us to walk. And in between those two positions is a walking away from our old life and a walking in newness of life with Christ. So yes, the gospel is offensive. Paul, I believe, is concerned that Timothy could possibly be swayed by all the pressure that he's under. Make no mistake, he was under pressure. He was under pressure from the culture in Ephesus. He was under pressure from his church. And he was under pressure from those who've crept into the church who are now teaching something other than the gospel. We find ourselves under a lot of pressure. Maybe you felt that pressure maybe at work. For young people, no doubt you failed it at school. And it's this idea that, that there really is no truth, that you can have your truth and I can have my truth, and those truths can be equally viable, which, again, is not true. Truth doesn't originate with me. The truth originated with the Creator, and the Creator has spoken, and He's given us His 
word, his truth, his love letter, and all 66 of these books that we have in our hands, that they're right here, God has spoken. And that God is the creator of this universe. He gets to determine what is right and wrong. He gets to determine what is life and what is not life. That what is joy and what is not joy. What is righteous and what is unrighteous. As the creator, he gets to decide that. But there are all kinds of voices that are competing right now for your attention. And they're given a lot of opinions about what God's word says, about what Christianity is, about who Jesus was. The thing that concerns me the most is is that I see people who have been part of the church for quite some time who who made some profession of faith who've become an echo chamber of what our culture is saying. So so they're taking false teaching, false doctrine, things that are absolutely unorthodox, orthodox meaning straight teaching, and, 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 and actually passing that along into our culture as though it's true. Misusing God's Word for their own purposes. I think Paul was concerned that Timothy could fall into that trap. The fact of the matter is, a lot of people are falling into that trap. But here's, here's the thing that really concerns me. Is there are people who are saying that God says this, or God says that, or Jesus taught this and Jesus taught that, when in fact that God didn't say it, the Bible doesn't say it, and Jesus didn't teach that. So what, in essence, what they're doing is they're putting words into God's mouth that he never said. And let me, let me just stress at the very beginning here, that is a dangerous, dangerous thing to do. To stand in front of people and say, thus is what God says. This, this is what the Bible teaches when the Bible doesn't teach it. As a matter of fact, most often what I'm finding, the Bible teaches exactly the opposite of what a lot of folks out there are saying. Therefore, we who follow Jesus must be careful that we do not add to that. We must be careful that when we, when we click share on Facebook, that someone says, this is what the Bible teaches, or this is what is true, and we click share, we have now shared that with maybe 500, 1,000 or more of your friends and perpetuated something that God never said. You see, it's really easy. It's really easy to pass along false teaching these days. Social media has made it very easy. And there are people out there who have as their agenda to undermine the very Jesus you believe in. Paul here, I think, is concerned that Timothy may fall into this trap. So let's take a look at what Paul says to Timothy about this particular issue. Look at verse 14. He says, remind them of these things. What things? What, what, what things is Paul wanting them to be reminded of? Well, back up into verse 11 in chapter 2, and I think we'll see it. Look at verse 11. He says, the saying is trustworthy for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. I think that's the things that Paul wants to remind the church and remind Timothy of. Those verses right there, verse 11 through uh, 13, was actually a hymn. And I wonder, I don't know for sure, but I wonder if, if when Timothy would dismiss the church gathering, and remember, they're probably gathering in a home, and it may be multiple homes by this point, but they're meeting in a home, and, and, and there is the teaching of God's Word, and when they would get done, and maybe, maybe they would sing a psalm, and they would, they would leave. I wonder if they would sing these words. I wonder if they would quote together this particular phrase, because we know this was used in the early church. He says, if we have died with Him, we will also live with Him. Here's, here's what Paul's doing. Paul's bringing Timothy back to the core 
teachings of the church. And he summarizes it in a hymn. And he says here, if we have died with him, we will also live with him. That verse is the gospel kind of in a compact fashion. So what does it mean to die with Jesus? Well, when we put our faith in Christ, we know that Paul taught in Romans chapter 6 that we have died to ourselves. It is no longer us who lives, that we died on that moment. And then, and then as we symbolize in baptism, we lay a person back in the water symbolizing their death, and then we bring them back up out of the water signifying their new life in Christ, that we've been not only have we died with Christ, but we've been resurrected to new life. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, remember the gospel. And remember that if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Not only do we live with him now, that Jesus lives in us, but we will go and live with him in that place of perfection and beauty one day. He says, Timothy, remember remember what the church is about. And then he says in verse 12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we endure, we will also reign. This goes back to what Jesus himself taught. He would often teach this in parables, that 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 in, with the disciples, the disciples had to understand that following him was not going to be easy. In Luke 9, he says, you're going to take up a cross and follow me. And if you don't take up a cross, then you're not worthy of following me. And the disciples knew that taking up a cross meant suffering. They knew that. But Jesus would teach in the parable of the talents that he's going to entrust some things to his disciples. And they're to go multiply those things. And then when the master comes back, when Jesus returns, when you have to stand before Christ, there's going to be an accounting. And on that day, if you've taken what Jesus has given you and invested it in kingdom work, Jesus is going to say to you, come into the kingdom, you who are blessed, you who've been faithful, and come into this kingdom that I have been preparing for you, and I will give you responsibility over many things. The idea is, is that if we endure, we remain faithful to Christ, that when we stand before him, we'll be rewarded for that endurance. That's core doctrine. That's orthodox Christianity. Notice what else he says. He says, if we deny him, he will also deny us. That is a strong statement. That should make some chills go down your spine. If we deny him, he will deny us. The culture that is trying to undermine the Christian faith, they, they would have you be ashamed of what you believe. As a matter of fact, a lot of what I see going on right now is driven by shame. That you, you can't talk about Jesus in the public square. If you do, we'll make fun of you. If you mention something about Jesus on Facebook, then you're going to get a hundred replies that are absolutely going to blast you. And if you say that, that you follow Jesus and that you believe the Bible, you put that out on social media, and the responses that you get both in your replies and in your inbox are anything but gentle and kind, right? The culture would have you to deny the very Jesus that saved you. The culture would have you be ashamed of the fact that you name the name of Christ. Have you not already experienced that? I have. And, and what he's saying here is, and he's saying to Timothy, and he's saying to this church, listen, there is a serious circumstance to denying Jesus because you're ashamed of him, or denying the gospel because you're ashamed of it, or denying the fact that you are a Christ follower because the culture doesn't like it. Ephesus didn't like it. And neither does our culture. But Jesus says, or Paul says to Timothy, and Jesus said the same thing, if you deny me, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. But look at this last part, verse 13, of the things that Paul wants Timothy to, to remind the church of. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. Did you get that? 
the core characteristic of God, one of his core attributes of who he is, is that he will always be faithful to you, even when you're unfaithful to him. So get this, if you fail, God will not fail. If, if we lose confidence, his confidence remains. If, if, if we become weak, it doesn't affect him. He's always strong. He's always there. He's always in control. It says if we, if we become weak, he, becomes, he remains strong. When we miss the mark, his aim is sure. And it says here that he cannot deny himself, which means that God cannot go against what he's already said. Whatever promises he's made, he will keep. He cannot deny the very character of who God is. So in other words, God is faithful. So, so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, remind the church of these core doctrines. And if we've died with him, we'll live with him. If we endure, we'll reign. If we deny him, he'll deny us. Even when we're faithless, he's faithful. God cannot deny himself. Now, remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words, which does no good, but only ruins the hearers. There are two statements in 2 Timothy about the Word of God, two very powerful statements. Two statements that, that Paul makes to Timothy about the authority of God's Word, about how to interpret God's Word, and about where God's Word came from. Inspiration. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But in between those two statements about God's Word is chapter 3. And the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 through 9, we'll talk about this next week, is what a culture looks like that has departed from absolute truth. Paul unpacks it for Timothy. Paul knew exactly what was happening in Ephesus, and he talks about it in chapter 3. But before he gets there, he says to Timothy, Timothy, make sure you don't get into arguments about things that don't matter. Make sure you stay focused on what is true, because one of the dangers in all the arguing and the false teaching is that Timothy loses his focus. And he says the result of that is there's no good that comes from it, and it ruins the hearers. Verse 15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What does it mean to rightly handle? Some of your translations may say rightly dividing. Well, let's unpack what Paul is saying and warning Timothy about. He says, Timothy, first of all, do your best to present yourself to God. In other words, church, followers of Jesus, you have no reason to present yourself to culture asking for their approval. You were called out of darkness into light. You have walked out of the brokenness of this world. You came out of spiritual death into spiritual life. You have no reason to go back to our culture and ask our culture if they approve of what we believe. No reason whatsoever. Paul says, Timothy, Timothy, make sure you present yourself to God as one approved. Don't go to the culture. Don't go to Ephesus. Don't go ask them, hey, you guys okay with this teacher? Are you okay with this doctor? Because you know what they're going to say? They're going to say no. Spiritually dead people cannot discern spiritual things. So Timothy, do not present yourself to anyone else as a worker of the Great Commission work that you've been given. Don't present yourself to someone else looking for approval. You put yourself before God and you seek His approval. And how do you do it? How do you find God's approval. How do you get God's stamp of approval? Well, it's when you say what God has said, and nothing more and nothing less. 
Now, God loves you with an everlasting love. His grace is always sufficient. His mercy is new and fresh every morning. So I'm not saying that somehow we've got to do the right things to earn God's love. You've already got it. But as a Christ follower, we of all people have got to be faithful to the truth. He says here, do your best. Present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed. You have no reason to be ashamed. You have no reason to be ashamed of Jesus. You have no reason to be ashamed of being a Christian and connected to a local church. You have no reason to go out into this world and apologize for what you believe. And there's far too much of that going on right now. I'm not going to apologize for the Jesus Christ who lived and died and resurrected. I have no apologies to make. Now, I want to tell you about him. I want to do it in kindness and love. I want to do it in a way that, that helps us to have a conversation about who Jesus is. But I will not apologize for Jesus, and I will not apologize for the words him and Paul and Moses and everyone else has said in his inspired words. I will not do it because it requires no apology, and it requires no shame. Do not be ashamed, Christian. You have nothing to be ashamed of. The truth of God's Word is just as relevant today, more so than it's ever been. He says... Do not, you have no need to be ashamed unless you are correct, incorrectly using God's Word. Now, if you're taking God's Word and you're using it, twisting it, and contorting it to fit something that the culture is saying, then you have a reason to be ashamed. But if you don't want to be ashamed before your Father, then rightly handle the Word of truth. What does that mean, rightly handle? The, the idea behind your English translation is simply this. When we see rightly handle, it simply means to cut it straight. Cut straight. Uh, give you an illustration or a, a story that uh, where I got this horribly wrong one time. I, the, the first house my wife and I lived in in, in Wilkes after we moved out of the apartment, uh, the upstairs wasn't finished in that house, and uh, I wanted to finish it myself. I wanted to, to frame it out and build the bathroom the way I wanted to build it and frame out the bedrooms. And, and I love doing that stuff even to this day. And, and I went to my dad's, and I borrowed one of his uh, chop saws, cutoff saw. Well, he didn't give me his good one. He gave me his old one. Because I guess even at that age, he still didn't trust me with his tools. Even to this day, he still doesn't. That's another story. But nonetheless, he gives me his old chop saw. And so I set that thing up in the upstairs. I've got all my two fours, and I'm ready to start laying out some stud walls. And so I start cutting. Now, he failed to tell me something very important about this particular saw. That when you set the saw at 90 degrees to cut two fours, it's not actually cutting 90 degrees. It's cutting about 95, 98. Now, you don't know that after you've cut you know, 50-some tubivores and framed out some doors and walls, but you start putting things together and stuff ain't fitting. <laughs> you know, your, your, your top plate on your wall is all twisted up because I'm using an air nailer, and when I nailed it, the would be twisted over here, and then it'd be twisted over here, and it looked, just looked awful. The door frames were all out of kilter. Nothing was squaring up. And this is like 50 tubivores in, and I'm like, something ain't right. I should have caught it before then. But then I realized I took a square and laid it on the tubivore, and it's off by a good degree. The fact of the matter is five degrees off is a huge deal when you're cutting lots and lots of studs to build a wall. Dad knew that, but Dad didn't tell me. So now i got a whole pile of two-by-fours here i got to throw away because it wasn't cutting straight. Another way to look at this is, in, in the Greek language, it's the idea of cutting a path, maybe through a forest, a dense forest, and, and you want to cut it straight. My mom and dad always kept a big garden, huge garden. And I can remember as a kid, maybe 10, 11, 12 years old, dad would uh, let me use the tractor to, to lay off the rows, right? So he'd have the turning plow there, and he'd want me to lay off a row to plant potatoes. He put me on a tractor. He said, now, now keep the rows straight. 
And I get on that tractor, and I don't know if it's because I was looking behind me and not looking ahead. I get to the end, that thing is just as crooked as it can be. There I go, you, are you drinking something? What's wrong with you? And so he'd have to cover it back up, and he'd tell me to do it again. And then, then it would get even worse when I would have to do like one row and then another row and keep the same amount of distance between the rows. It was awful. It was terrible. I couldn't keep it straight. That, that's what Paul's talking to Timothy about. Timothy, cut it straight. Timothy, cut a straight path. And when you cut a straight path, walk a straight path. Don't, don't veer to the left or the right. Stay on the path. He says, rightly dividing the word of truth. In other words, don't put words in God's mouth that God didn't say. Don't post on Facebook something that you don't even know if the Bible even teaches it or not. Don't go out there and proclaim something about Christianity that you're not sure of or that somebody else told you that's not in God's Word because when you do, you are causing division, you are causing confusion, and you are undermining the very gospel itself. And worse of all, you are putting words in the mouth of God that God never said. I don't know about you, but I don't want to be guilty of that. Did you know that I've got to stand before Jesus and I've got to give an account for every single word that I have taught in this church for eight years and beyond? But get this, you're going to have to give an account too for every page like that was heresy, every share on Facebook that is unorthodox Christianity. Don't think for a moment now, I'm going to be the only one held accountable. You're going to be held accountable as well. And you're going to stand before Jesus, and Jesus is going to look at you and go, you know, you, you shared that as though that was true, and, and that's not true at all. And I gave you a Bible. I gave you a church. I gave you opportunities to learn what it means to, to be true to the faith in one small click of a computer, and you're actually undermining what Jesus taught. You see, I think Paul was concerned that Timothy may fall under the pressure of his culture and those who have crept into his church. I think the only reason Paul puts this there is he's warning Timothy, Timothy, do not. He's going to get in next about the dangers and the, and the, and the problems that are creeping into the church because of this false teaching. When I was working on my doctorate degree through Southeastern Seminary, I had a in an interesting class period one day, we were, uh, I was taking a seminar. The title of the seminar was uh, Christ-Centered Preaching Through Old Testament Narrative. Sounds really interesting, doesn't it, right? So this was a seminar. I was at Southeastern, and uh, I'm probably about midway into that doctorate degree, and one of the hardest things I've ever done is, is to go through that process. And I had 10 other students that were with me on this journey, so we were all kind of a cohort of of going through to get our doctorate degree in expo exp expositional preaching. So in this particular class, the professor had asked us to bring a sermon or make a sermon available where we had preached out of an Old Testament book, an Old Testament portion of narrative, which is story, which the Old Testament is about 60% narrative. And, and he wanted us to bring a sermon that we could watch in class, and we were going to critique each other's sermons in class. Well, I had preached through the book of Ruth here, and it was before the building was damaged and all that stuff, so we were still in this building. And I preached, I think it was about an eight-sermon series out of the book of Ruth. And so there was this one sermon, I think it was about sermon four, sermon five, that was like my, this is like my A game, this is like my home run hit, you know? Because I'm not going to take, take like a foul ball sermon, I'm going to take my home run sermon, and out of those eight sermons in Ruth, I felt like that number five sermon was the best, so I'm going to take my best to class. 
So we go to class and uh, we get it. We get into the room and you know the other ten students are there and the professor's there and he says, "Oh, we have a have something special today. We have some, two other professors that are going to be joining us today to watch your sermons." So he introduces the other two guys in the class. The first guy he introduced was Dr. Alan Mosley. Dr. Alan Mosley is a professor of Old Testament and Hebrew and had been doing that for about 30 years at Southeastern. This guy is well-known, written a lot of books, genius when it comes to Old Testament and Hebrew. So I'm getting, I'm getting really anxious at this point because he's sitting back there and he's leaned back in the chair and he's got his glasses down on his nose. He didn't even move. He's just sitting there. The other guy that came out, I can't remember his name, but he was the, the preaching chair. He was the chair over the preaching department at Southeastern Seminary. And then, of course, Dr. Dowd, my professor. So one of the things that's plagued me my whole life in school is that my last name starts with a B, and very rarely is there anybody with a last name that starts with A. So when we're going to go first, guess who gets to go first? That's followed me my whole life. So I said, okay, Blackburn's going to go first. So I pulled up um, my sermon on the TV there, and we're watching. We had these forms that we would fill out and critique one another. But Dr. Mosley's sitting back there at the end of this big conference room table. Sermon starts, I'm nervous as a cat. And, uh, you know, we're getting into it. I'm like, I'm thinking about this one moment in the sermon where, you know, it all kind of comes together. I, I was really proud of that moment too, you know. There was this point in the sermon where I was talking about some of the Hebrew language and how it all kind of ties. Kind of that moment in the sermon, that, that clinch moment where everybody's like, ah, yeah, that makes sense. Well, we're getting up to that moment. It's about halfway in. Dr. Mosley hadn't moved. He's just been sitting back there, hadn't moved. Well, I get to this moment where I am waxing eloquently about a Hebrew phrase, and all of a sudden, Dr. Mosley sits up in his chair and starts writing. Well, in my pride and arrogance, I'm thinking, wow, he just learned something. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, you can laugh. It's all good. Uh, and if he watches this, he's probably laughing somewhere right now, too. Um, so we get to the end of the sermon, and... Uh, my prof, my professor says, okay, let's, let's give Mr. Blackburn some feedback on his sermon. What would y'all think? It's dead silent. Crickets in the background. Nobody's saying nothing. I'm like, wow, man, that sermon was so good. There's no critique. What? It's awesome. I knew it was that good. At that time, uh, Dr. Mosley sits up in his chair, and he says, yeah. Uh, he said, I want to go back to that Hebrew phrase that you had right in the middle of your sermon. He said, because a lot of your sermon was kind of contingent on that moment, right? And I said, yeah, it was. He said, because your application kind of flowed out of that. By the way, a side note here, you always interpret the text before you apply it. Because if you don't interpret correctly, you're going to apply it incorrectly. All right? So he says, this kind of is a key moment. He says, I'm just wondering, what kind of sources did you use? What kind of commentary did you use for your, uh, for your sermon? Especially with that particular phrase. I'm like, oh, yeah, I have the New American Commentary series, and, and I was reading that. And he goes, oh, yeah, uh, I'm picking a name here. John Smith wrote that, right? And I go, yeah. Dang, I I don't know. Sure. Okay. He says, yeah, well, John, John is a good friend of mine. We're, uh, we've been doing ministry together for years, and I know that commentary pretty well. He said, you got that phrase off of page 392. It's at this point I begin to realize things are not going well. Okay. He says, yeah, uh, my colleague did write that on page 392, your, how, you, how you landed on that Hebrew phrase. He said, but if you'd have read four pages later on page you know, uh, 3408, uh, uh, you would have found out, and he quotes the commentary. Yes, he quotes 
the commentary on page 409 about where the author said that's actually not the correct way to approach that phrase. Here's the correct. So what I did is if I'd only read six more pages, I could have had a better understanding of what that particular Hebrew phrase is. So then the professor goes on to tell me that not only was that interpretation wrong, but then your application that connected to that was wrong. And so basically Dr. Mosley pulls a pin on the grenade and rolls it under my sermon and blows it to smithereens. So yes, your pastor failed to rightly handle God's Word. Now, was I teaching heresy? No. Was I, was I off somewhere over here teaching something that was ungodly or unfit? No, but I got it wrong. I called my wife later on that day, and I told her, I'm coming home. I'm quitting. I don't know exactly what she said, but I'm pretty sure I had something like this. Suck it up. Suck it up. She's got that gift of love and I'm joking. I, she didn't probably didn't say that, but it was something along that line. But I was I was down in the dumps and I was back in my room working on homework, and all of a sudden I get this email. Email pops up. Guess who it was from? Dr. Mosley. And I'm like, oh my goodness, he's not done. He's he's went home and thought of other things to say about how bad the sermon was. And as if he didn't blow it up to start with, he's gonna take it a little further. And I, I didn't even want to click on it. Because I'm like, this kind of confirms. He, he's probably in that email saying you need to quit. It was exactly the opposite. And I've got that email to this day. and It's about two or three paragraphs of one of the most encouraging emails I've ever gotten. And he said, look. He said, yeah, you, you got it wrong. But we all get it wrong. He said, you've got a gift. He said, God has called you to preach. Don't you? And get this. I didn't tell him I was going to quit. I didn't think, he didn't know I was thinking about it, but the Holy Spirit said to Dr. Mosley, Dr. Mosley, that young man's discouraged. You might want to come back around. And in that email, he says this in bold letters. He says, don't you dare quit. Well, that made it a lot more difficult, now didn't it? Rightly handling truth. We can miss the mark, but we can never take his word lightly. Folks, we've got to do our due diligence. We've got to work hard. We've got to be about making sure we understand. And we have the Holy Spirit. We have, listen, we have the author of Scripture living in us. And it's when we get in a hurry. When, when, we, when we cut short reading the whole counsel of God's Word, when we rush through it, when we rely on devotionals, and I'm not anti-devotional. Devotions are fine. But if you rely more on the devotional, if you, more, if you rely more on what a man or a woman has said than what the creator of this universe has said, then you are putting yourself in a position to believe something that's not real. Only God's Word is inspired. Only God's Word is truth. And it's the truth we need today. It's the truth you need today. Yes, I know there's places of it's hard to read. Yeah, I know you get back over in Leviticus and you're like, what in the world is this? One animal after another after another being put to death and blood being shed. All of it is important. And all of it demands your due diligence. All of it demands that you take the time and you rightly divide it because to do anything less is to put words in God's mouth that He never said. And that's happening everywhere. And how are you going to be able to tell the difference? How are you going to know when there's heresy? How are you going to know when it's unorthodox? How are you going to know when false teaching is creeping in? The only way you can know is know what the real Word says. And to know it well. Notice what Paul says here to Timothy. He says, rightly handling the word of truth, verse, verse 16, he says, but avoid irreverent babble. We have a lot of irreverent babble, and it's just that. It's garbage. 
Anybody with a computer or a phone or an iPad can start up a blog post and say that they know what God says when, in fact, they don't have a clue. As a matter of fact, a lot of the stuff that I'm hearing in podcasts, some of them I've had to stop listening to because they are not tied to God's Word, even though that's what they say they're there to do. Whether that's intentional or unintentional, whether it's just laziness or they're trying to undermine the gospel, I don't know what the content of their heart is. I just know that I can recognize heresy when I see it. We'll talk about how to do that here at the end. He says, but avoid irreverent babble. Here's the results of what this false teaching will do. It will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Well, of course. God's Word being true, the Creator of the universe speaking to you about what is right and wrong, when you ignore that or water that down, guess what happens? It gives you a license to move farther into ungodliness. God has spoken. And He says to us, there are things that are right and things are wrong. You know why He's doing that? It's not because he's some mean ogre, some old man up in heaven somewhere. The man upstairs won't be pleased. and He's, he's mean and he's trying to prevent me from having some fun. No, God is trying to protect you from yourself. He knows what you're capable of. He knows what the fall did to you. He knows just how far you will go. He knows that inside of your heart is a lost person. He knows, he knows what you're capable of. And not only that, Christian, he knows what you're capable of because he knows you're still dealing with that flesh and that flesh loves to be engaged and he knows what the potential is. So he's going to say to you, just like any good parent would, don't go down this path. And if you do, I'm going to bring some circumstances in your life. Any good parent would do that. God is a good father. Notice what else he says here. He says, but avoid irreverent Bible for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness and their talk will spread like gangrene. Now that gangrene word that we have there, it was a, a flesh disease that was common back in Jesus' day and Paul's day and it would, it would literally spread and, and it would spread from person to person and literally people's flesh would be rotting on their arms and their legs. Probably what's most related to what Paul is saying here in our day would be cancer. He says that this false teaching, this irreverent babble that leads people to ungodliness and it spreads like cancer. We have church after church after church after church. We have ministry organization after ministry organization after ministry organization that are failing and falling. Why? Because they begin to depart from the truth to appease a culture that cares nothing about their God or their Savior. They, they are departing from truth to make someone else feel good about themselves. And at the same time, we're denying the very Savior that saved us. We're denying the very King who resurrected. We're denying what He said simply to make someone else feel good about themselves. Now listen, we are to be kind. We are to be loving. We are to be gentle. But we are to be established upon truth. And here we cannot move. Stubborn, yes. Paul says, because it spreads like a disease. And among them are Hymenaeus and Philetus. Look at verse 18. This is a very important verse. Who have swerved from the truth. They are saying that the resurrection has already happened. Now what is it they're teaching? Now we've, we've seen this controversy about words, right? What is it they're actually teaching? Well, they were teaching in this church, what was in opposition to what Timothy was teaching, is that, that they understood there would be a resurrection one day. A resurrection of all those who put their faith in Jesus, there'll be a resurrection. We believe that as well, that there'll be a day when Jesus comes back, He'll call those which have died in Christ out of the grave. There'll be a reunification of the body, soul, to the, 
the soul, spirit to the body, a brand new body, a new created body, that is that resurrection. They were expecting it. Timothy was teaching it. But these false teachers were saying, not only has that resurrection already occurred, then it's not a bodily resurrection. It's actually a spiritual resurrection. It's already occurred, and you've missed out. But they're also teaching at the same time that Jesus didn't bodily resurrect. Now, they're not just walking in saying, you know, Jesus didn't resurrect. They're in there saying, well, you know, you're not going to really resurrect. But by default, they're saying that Jesus did not bodily resurrect. Notice what Paul says here. He says they've swerved from the truth. And they're saying things about the resurrection that aren't true. But here's the point I want you to see. They are upsetting the faith of some. I told you many weeks ago that the fountainhead of all false teaching is demonic. What is the goal of Satan, the forces of darkness, in their false teaching? If the fountainhead of false teaching is demonic, what, what, is, the, what is the game here? What is the, what is the goal of, of Satan and those workers of darkness to try to infiltrate the church with false teaching. Turn over to 1 Peter. Once you see this, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 5. And you probably are aware of these verses. You've seen these verses. But I want to give you a, a, maybe a new consideration here. So Peter is writing to a bunch of churches, a bunch of Christians that have been dispersed all over the Roman Empire. They're being, they're being persecuted heavily for their faith. So Peter writes these two letters to the church that has been dispersed and are suffering. And in 1 Peter chapter 5, I want you to look at verse 8. Very familiar passage. Now, now keep in the back of your mind that Paul says here, the false teachers that have come into Timothy's church, they're undermining the faith. They are robbing people of faith. Notice what Peter says about Satan. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him. And here it is. Firm in your faith. Paul's right there for just a moment. So we, we've heard this verses, or maybe you're hearing it for the first time, but the idea is this imagery that Paul or that Peter paints here about Satan. That Satan is cunning, he is intelligent, and, he, and he's like a lion who's seeking to devour. So when we get that imagery, we start thinking of National Geographic, right? Maybe some documentary that you've seen online that, that you've got a lion and he's he's picked out his prey and he's kind of circling. Or maybe you see him kind of creeping up in the tall grass. The imagery that Peter's giving here is that the Satan is out walking, surrounding, walking around his prey. And he says he's seeking to devour. Now, what does that mean? Well, we know that Satan can't touch your salvation, that you who've been born again, you're in the palm of hand, God's hand and nothing can pluck you out. So we know that Satan cannot take your salvation. So, so what is Satan trying to do? What is he trying to devour? Paul, uh, Peter says here that in, in relation to this lion, Satan, who's prowling around, you need to be firm in your faith. Do you know what Satan is actually trying to do? He's trying to rob you of faith. He's trying to undermine your faith. He's trying to undermine your trust in God. Go back to 2 Timothy. So Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, some of these false teachers are upsetting or undermining or robbing people of faith. Well, what is faith? Faith is trust that we act upon. Where is trust or faith built? How do you build faith? Well, it's in the facts of God's Word. When you came to faith in Christ, what did you act upon? You act upon the truth of the gospel. So, so faith is linked to truth. So when Satan undermines truth, when he, when he undermines it, he waters it down, when, they, when people creep in and they say that Jesus said this when he didn't say it, 
when they put words in the mouth of God that God didn't say, what they're actually trying to do is rob you of your faith and your trust in a holy God who is always true and always faithful. You see, the reality is, is I don't put my faith in my feelings. We have a whole culture now that is saying that we need to, we need to put our faith in feelings. Well, I don't know about you, but my feelings change well, pretty regularly. There are days I wake up, and I don't feel a whole lot like following Jesus. Just being honest. There are days that um, I would just rather feel like not doing what I know I need to do. But I have to do what I know I need to do because that's what God has called me to. So I don't, my faith is not connected to feelings. Feelings go here one day and here the next. If your faith is connected to your feelings, you have a very weak faith. Matter of fact, you have a, may have a faith that has no faith at all. Maybe one of the reasons you're struggling with following Jesus is because your faith has been connected to feelings and there are days that you just don't feel like worshiping. There are days you don't feel like opening God's Word. There are days you don't feel like praying. Well, guess what? The facts of Scripture and your faith is being built by the truth of God's Word and the truth of God's Word is the facts of the Gospel, the facts of who you are in Christ, the facts of what God says about you. And that comes down to rightly dividing His Word. So wouldn't it make sense that if Satan's wanting to rob you of faith, he would start by undermining God's Word? Does that not make sense? Sure it does. What did Satan do in the garden with Eve? Exactly that. Hey, Eve, did God really say? Did God really say that? It's been his tactic all along. For those who are following God, those who have their faith in Jesus, he wants to undermine that faith. And how will he do it? By false teaching. And how are we getting false teaching today? Well, can we just say social media? It's everywhere. It's creeping into every aspect of your online presence. Every day, somebody is mixing a little truth with a little falsehood, and we're looking at it without any discernment, without even considering, did God actually say this? And we're spreading false teaching by the click of a mouse, or by an enter on our keyboard, or by a share on our phone. How can we rightly divide God's Word? How can we be faithful to not put words in God's mouth that He never said? Notice what Paul says here in closing. Verse 19, but God's firm foundation stands. That is good news to know. We've talked a lot about all that's going on in culture and society. And the last thing I want you to do is have your knees knocking together and afraid, oh, the church is going to fail. Oh, the church is failing. No, no. You see, Paul says to Timothy, and I think Timothy needed to hear this, God's Firm foundation stands. Jesus said it this way to Peter. Jesus said to Peter, Peter, I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So it doesn't matter what's going on out there. God has the final word. He has the final say. What God has established, it will continue. What God has said is going to happen will play itself out. God is sovereignly and completely in control. Our responsibility as Christ followers is to make sure we rightly divide God's word. How do we do that? First of all, you need to slow down. Slow down. You're reading God's Word like it's a like it's a sprint. And you need to be reading it like a marathon. You need to be curious. I, I am curious by nature. I always have been. God, why'd you put that there? God, why does why does it say that? Hey, is there is there somewhere else that you said that? And if so, who said it? 
Those chain link references in your Bible are very important. Ask questions about the text. Dig into it. Listen, folks, get out of the kiddie pool. Get into the deep end. Go out there in that stuff where, where you're a little afraid, you're a little bit unnerved about it. Go out in the deep end of the pool with God. That's where He's wanting you to go. He's wanting to take you and show you some things in His Word. Some things that will blow your mind. Some things that will establish your faith. Some things that will give you hope and peace. And it's going to be hard work. But my goodness, what work is more worth being part of than that work? God has spoken. You have it right here. There's nothing more important on God's green earth than what God has said about you, about your family, about the church, about your mission. There's nothing more important than that. So how can we rightly divide it? Well, we can slow down. We can be curious. We can ask questions. In the fall, in August, I'm going to be offering a class on how to study God's Word. We're going to walk through this. I want you to be part of that. I want you to know those online. I'm going to offer it online as well. I want you to be part of that. How can we recognize false teachers? By knowing God's Word. How can you discern what is true and what is false without knowing what is true? So you've got to know God's Word. How, how else can we recognize false teachers? Well, second, we've we got to listen to the Holy Spirit. There will be times that you read something that goes, ah, something ain't right. And you can't really explain it, but there's just like that, that check in the Spirit. As, as you dig more into God's Word, the Holy Spirit uses that, and He, he kind of becomes that check, like, uh, something ain't right there. I need, to, I need to investigate that before I share that, or before I put my name on that, or before I say, wow, good job, good post. I need to think that through. Third, you need a discerning mind. As you dig into God's Word and as your faith is built, and as you listen to God speaking His Word, the next thing you know, you begin to get a discerning mind as you listen to what the Holy Spirit's saying to you, and you, 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 you slow down a little bit, and you listen. Listen, if, if that person is indulging the flesh, if that person is undermining the gospel, if that person has a low view of Scripture, or if they deny the miraculous, if they say, oh, well, Jesus really didn't heal, Jesus really didn't raise anyone from the dead, Jesus really didn't heal the leper, when you hear that, you immediately know something's wrong. That's discerning. And then finally, if they subvert the main character of the Bible, you know who the main character of the Bible is? Jesus Christ the righteous. If they're saying, Things about Jesus that you know. It's not, oh, he's just a man. He's just a teacher. That's heresy. Oh, Jesus didn't resurrect bodily. He was like Casper the ghost. Heresy. Oh, oh Jesus wants you to live a happy life, and he's going to give you everything that you need. And, and when you follow him, you'll never have any problems. Heresy. The only way you can know that is to get into God's Word. And more now than ever, our culture needs to have people in their jobs, at their schools. He knows what this says and is not ashamed of. Father in heaven, your goodness and your grace is sufficient. Your love is everlasting. And you have spoken. And Father, we have the beauty and the perfection of your word in our hands. There's no reason for us to look anywhere else. And Father, there's also no reason to be ashamed of what you've said. Yes, Father, it's hard work. This most rewarding work we could ever put our hands to is to understand and apply and live by your word. Well, I know the pressure this congregation is under. I know the pressure those online are feeling to want to please or fit in, and in doing so, being willing to compromise what we know to be right. Father, I pray that we would endure. Pray that we be convicted. 
I pray, Father, that we would be established upon your firm foundation, knowing, Father, that what this world needs is not people who compromise, but people who love, people who are established, people who are willing to tell the truth. So, Father, during this time of commitment, if there's anything in our life that is causing us to compromise, may we be willing to sacrifice that. May we be willing to come back to your word, be firmly established what is true. We ask it in Christ's name. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Hyde Park Baptist Church, please check out our website, hydepark.church, or on social media on Facebook and Instagram, at Hyde Park Baptist.